My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome as we continue our journey through the Word of God and Today we are going to be looking at a psalm, Psalm 7, written by David. It's a wonderfully titled psalm, and it says, A meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, most of the psalms, particularly ones written by David, you can link to certain events written in previous books of the Bible that chronicled the events that Jesus, that David, sorry, went through. And as you follow the life of David, you can find that he wrote these Psalms at, uh, times during his life. First and second Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and all those, uh, different opportunities we have to read about David going through circumstances. And we know, oh, this is the song he sang during that battle. Or this is the song he sang when he was in the cave being chased by Paul, uh, by Saul, sorry. So, um, so this is one that we have where uh, we don't actually have the exact historical context of when this one was actually written. It could be a uh, veiled reference to uh, Shemai's accusations against David in 2 Samuel chapter 16. Um, but we know that this Cush, the Benjamite, was somebody who was a friend of Saul's who was against David. And so this psalm is David's cry of anguish and also at the same time his confidence in God's delivery of him from this circumstance. Now, as I have mentioned to you before, one of the things that I love to do with reading psalms, uh, particularly ones written by David, are to read the last verse first and then go back and read the psalm. Now, why is that? Because it's always wonderful to see where we know David's going to end up at the end of a psalm and keep that in mind as we're reading the psalm. So Psalm 7 verse 17 says, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. That's where David ends. And he starts off by saying, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me. Deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. Here David is under attack, and all he could do was trust God. That was all he had. All his other support was gone, but he knew he didn't need any any other support. And he says, deliver me. Now, Sometimes God's evidence in our life and the evidence of him helping us is helping us through a trial. And other times it's evident in helping us be delivered from a trial. David was persuaded that God wanted him to be delivered from this trial. Now, Spurgeon said this, to be slandered is a severe trial. It appears probable that Cush the Benjamite had accused David to Saul of treasonable conspiracy against his royal authority. This is the king, or sorry, this the king would be ready enough to credit, both from his jealousy of David and from the relation which most probably existed between himself and this Cush, the Benjamite. This may be called the Song 
of the slandered saint. Moving on. Lest they tear me like a lion. David believed that if God didn't deliver him, there was going to be incredibly grave consequences. Uh, and, And that's what gave David a sense of urgency in his prayer because God sometimes allows difficult circumstances to happen to us in our lives because it awakens a sense of urgency in us. Sometimes we need that. Spurgeon, it will be well for us here to remember that this is a description of the danger to which the psalmist was exposed from slanderous tongues. Verily, this is not an overdrawn picture, for the wounds of a sword will heal, but the wounds of the tongue cut deeper than the flesh and are not soon cured. David also knew what it was like to overcome a lion. He'd done that tending the sheep. So he knew what it was like to fight with a lion. But he also knew that the words spoken against him hurt way more than any cut from a knife or a sword. And then he goes on, he says, Oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity and sin in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honour in the dust. David didn't claim that he was sinless or that he was perfect. But he rejected the idea that there was some kind of equality to him and his enemies. He knew that he was, in this circumstance, living righteously and that he deserved to be uh, delivered because of his actions in trusting God. And he knew that in this situation, not always, because David was very aware of his faults, in this one, he was self-aware enough to know, in this one, I know I've done nothing wrong. And his words mean that he's innocent of the crime with which he's charged, which was not always the case with David. There were times when he was guilty of the charge that was laid against him. And we learn the nature of the charges against him in David's words. He had appropriated spoils that rightly belonged to the king. He had returned evil for good, and that he had taken toll for some generosity, is what Morgan says we learn from this psalm. Let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. David knew that the enemies wanted to bring him down. And he was so confident in being right with God in comparison to his enemies that he was willing to be given over to their desire if they actually were proven to be right. So then move on to verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. What a thing to say to God. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the people shall surround you for their sakes. Therefore, return on high. David believed that God was capable of sharing the same passions that he was, such as anger. David believed that the passions of God in this situation would be for David, that that God's wrath would be against other people. And he believed that God would be angry with his enemies, not with him. Guzik says, It is a mistake to believe that God is without passions. Because he is God, we can say that these passions are not exactly like their human counterparts, yet they are certainly somewhat like them. God is not cold, distant, and dispassionate. But it's also a mistake to assume that the passions of God are always with us or support us. Uh, There's been a lot of people who've been wrongly inspired by the fact that they believe God's going to be with them, uh, when he actually wasn't because they did not act according to his nature, to his word, to his calling and commandments. 
So David, though, has he has an amazing confidence in this situation. And he says, rise up for me. He believed that God was going to be for him and this cause. But he didn't hold this belief passively. He actively prayed for God to accomplish something, um, which is what he believed God's will was for this situation. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. David's prayer for protection and vindication was not selfish. He knew that his fate was connected to the welfare of God's people. And it was actually for their sakes, the sake of the congregation, is why he wanted God to prevail. Let's move on to verse 8. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God, who saves the upright heart. That's the attitude that protected David from presumption, is what Guzik says. He honestly invited God's judgment and correction. He was honest. He was being sincere. And David asked for God's blessing according to his my righteousness, his righteousness, his right standing with God, according to his integrity. He said, in effect, Lord, to the extent that I am right before you, bless me and protect me from my enemies. Um, he's just looking for justice between him and the people who have falsely accused him and said things about him that were not true, which is for us. Many people watching this today, you, you know what that feels like. Let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. It reveals more of the heart of David's prayer here. Uh, more than anything, he just said, God, I just want you to be just, which is what God always is and because it's all he can be. Uh, he, David wasn't praying for favoritism from God. He just said, God, be just. Search my own heart and put everything right. And he was praying beyond just his own personal needs. Uh, Kidna says this, Derek Kidna, there is a great breadth of vision in David here, revealing a concern for universal justice, which was always the motive behind David's personal appeals for vindication. My defense is of God. David knew that he was at an incredibly significant disadvantage before his enemies, and the only way that he was going to be defended is if God actually did it. So, then we go on to these next verses. God is a just God, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Um God is a just God. Unfortunately, this is a rejected truth that is dangerously rejected by a lot of people. People think that one day we're just going to stand before God and he's just, because God is love, that he'll just be compassionate and he'll just wave whatever we've done wrong away uh, and he's going to be incredibly generous. They never imagine they're going to stand before a God who's going to be perfectly just and cannot ignore the crime of sin and if you have not accepted Jesus' gift on your behalf for your sin, then you will receive the wrath of God. That's what's going to happen. Sin is a crime. It breaks the holy law of God. And, and while we know that 
All sins aren't equal. Matthew chapter 23 tells us that some sins are going to receive a higher level of condemnation. But there are no such thing as a small sin against God or a white lie or a white sin or some other, you know, label that we've incredibly mistakenly put on something to make it seem better, which, uh, which is crazy. The justice of God is easy to understand if we simply compare to what we expect from an earthly judge. What do you expect from an earthly judge? You expect justice. Um, we, we don't expect a judge to get up and just be moved by compassion and say, well, you know what, because of your situation, I feel so sorry for you. Um, you don't have to pay the price for the crimes, even though you did do them. But people are confident that that's what's going to happen to them on the day of judgment. Uh, they're so confident that they rely on on this for their salvation in eternity. But David knew the truth here. He's This is a thousand years before Jesus. He's like, no, no, God's a just God. Trust me, like you, you want to do what he tells you to do. He's angry with the wicked every day. Horn said this, the sense seems to be that there are daily instances in the world of God's favour towards his people as also of his displeasure against the ungodly, who are frequently visited by sore judgments and taken away in their sins. Yeah. He's going to sharpen his sword, bend his bow, make it ready. David here considers the readiness of God to judge the sinner. He could see that the sword had been sharpened, the bow was bent, and with God ready to judge the world, no sinner should ever presume that God is going to delay his judgment if all of a sudden you died right now. And this is another fatal, eternally fatal error that a lot of people make, who they see that God will somehow delay judgment on them because it happened at a time they weren't ready. And somehow that he will just have enough mercy to say, well, okay, you didn't have a time. No, God is concerned with justice. It's the whole reason why he sent his son, because a perfect price needed to be paid for the sin of mankind. And the sword is sharpened. The only thing that holds back God using his sword or his arrow in this circumstance here that David's talking about uh, is the undeserved mercy of God giving each of us as sinners an unknown period of time to repent, but we don't know how long. And we should never presume that that's going to last forever. Because these, the sword and the and and the arrows, um, they're instruments of death. Guzik says this: this powerful poetic imagery communicates the severity of God's judgment, hopefully providing another incentive to repentance. Horn says this: the wrath of God may be slow, but it is always sure. Let's move on to verse fourteen. Behold, the wicked things. Sorry. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. Now, it seems obvious, these statements. Uh, A wicked heart is going to show itself in the wicked deeds that it does. They could have the cover of nobility and respectability, but they can be filled with sin, which is exactly what the Pharisees were like. Pharisees weren't all bad in Jesus' day but they had a part of them that could turn into something that was bad. A a self-righteous wickedness. And 
David here says, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood, which shows the source of sin is from within the sinner. Uh, the sinner gives birth to sin the same way that a woman gives birth to a child. Verse 15, he made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealings shall come down on his own crown. Uh, interestingly enough, one of God's common methods of the distribution of justice is to bring on the same calamity for the wicked that they have prepared for the righteous. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Haman, uh, in the book of Esther, chapter 7, prepared a gallows for Mordecai to be, hang, uh, to be hung on. What ended up happening? The king says, go and hang Haman on those same gallows he prepared for Mordecai. Then you've got Daniel chapter 6. You've got Daniel in the lion's den. Throw him into the lion's den, bring him out, then put all the people uh, who, who, who falsely accused him, Daniel, throw them in. So they ended up being eaten by the lions that they prepared for Daniel to be eaten. Um, so wicked people need to be careful. Let's move on. Verse 17, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. David was wise enough to praise God according to his righteousness, the, the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of David. David appealed in this psalm on, on his own righteousness, like as if he'd done the right thing with God, but it wasn't a self-righteous prayer. David knew the difference between his righteousness, being right with God, doing what God wanted him to do, and God's perfect righteousness to him. He knew the difference. And that's why he said, I'll sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. So David ends this psalm, which begins in in just dire circumstances, on a high note of praise. Why? Because he knew that he could take his cause to God, leave it there, and God will take care of it. And that's a word for some of you today. That's my observation, that you're in the middle of something that's dire, take it to God, leave it there, let him be the just God. You make a determination, I will praise the Lord. Not I might, not I'll try, it's really hard. No, I will praise the Lord in spite of this very difficult circumstance. Not according to the day, week or year that I'm having. I will praise the Lord because he is a just God. And if you have been unjustly done by by friends or family, uh, I want to pray for you because I know it hurts. I know those words hurt. Somebody somebody hurts you with words that you, you just can't imagine they would do that to you. And it cuts you and it, and it lasts a long time, particularly when it's people really close to you. But God's a just God. And uh, he will justly take care of you and he will justly take care of your enemies. Uh, but if they repent and come to him, he'll love them and, and give them the same righteousness that he has afforded to you. He's not out to get them, but he will defend you. It's what he will do. And he'll make things just thing is, is that when God makes things just, he does it in his time frame, not in ours. And that's often the hard part, is that we're like, well, I want justice now. And what we have to do is give it to God and understand that justice might be now, it might be an eternity, we don't know. Somewhere in the middle, don't know. Heavenly Father, I pray for every person that's going through a tough time right now, Lord, uh, with being slandered or things have been said against them. And I pray, Lord, that they will praise the Lord according to your righteousness. In Jesus' name. so much for listening. 
For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.